Welcome to Can They Do That? brought to you by Scott Law Team, the employment law firm. We are excited to discuss recent employment issues and events that affect your everyday life. Keep in mind this podcast is educational and is not a substitute for legal advice or professional consultation. If you need help, you can reach us at scottlawteam.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Can They Do That? Rachel Kelly here, Marketing Director, and today I'm joined by Gabe Roberts, our Jacksonville partner. How are you doing, Gabe? I am living the dream, Rachel. How are you? (laughs) Gabe's living the dream. I'm also living the dream. Gabe, what are we going to be talking about today? Yeah, well, you know, it is October, and October is National Disability Employment Awareness Month, which is a really important month in general, uh, but also an important month for the kind of work that we do here at the Scott Law Team. And the work that we do here at the Scott Law Team, for those who may be listening for the first time, we are the employment law firm, so it's very important for us to be discussing workers' rights. So it is very important for us to be talking about it. And Gabe, let's get into why it's important. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to look at, you know, we are the employment law firm, like you said, and we like to help out individuals who are both employees and maybe individuals who have disabilities themselves, but also employers. And we want to make sure that they are not only following the law and and treating their employees with respect as needed, but also that they are not going to incidentally get themselves in trouble uh, by not following what they're supposed to do uh, when it comes to employees and disabilities and frankly, having just the right amount of respect in the workplace. Now, I didn't even know that it was uh, Disability Awareness Month until one of our attorneys let us know. Is there anything that is important about how long this has been going on? Is it a recent um, endeavor? Yeah, I mean, National Disability Employment Awareness Month has been a thing for a while, but this particular year, October of 2023, is an important year because uh, we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. And the Rehabilitation Act, or the Rehab Act, as we may talk about it today, is really the first kind of civil rights law in the country that offered any sort of protections in the workplace for people with disabilities. Now, it applied primarily to federal employees or for individuals who worked at organizations that received federal funding, but it really kind of laid the groundwork for the framework we have today regarding the protections for employees with disabilities. Let's dive a little into that. So let's look at the differences from you say that it laid the groundwork. What are some more recent um, achievements that uh, given to people with disabilities? Yeah, the primary law that most people think of today when they think of protections for workers with disabilities is going to be the Americans with Disabilities Act or the ADA. Now, the ADA applies to a lot of areas, not just in the workplace, but today we're going to focus mostly on the protections that it creates in the workplace for workers with disabilities. Okay, great. So now let's talk about what a disability is in legal terms. Yeah, so I can read you what the actual definition is as far as how the ADA, again, the American with Disabilities Act defines it. It's a person who has a physical or a mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities. A person who has a history or a record of such an impairment or a person who is perceived by others as having such an impairment. So as with most legal definitions, it's very broad. It contains a lot of words that don't make a lot of sense in other contexts, and it's hard to kind of nail down specifically uh, as far as what it means. Okay, so let's talk like interpretations. If we were to give some specific examples of what may constitute as a disability in the workplace, what would you say? Yeah, I mean, so here's going to be helpful is looking at the idea of what is a major life, life activity, because what 
becomes a disability. And I also want to emphasize that it could be a physical or a mental impairment, right? Uh, when we think of disability, it's not, it's not just somebody who has a physical ailment that impacts a major life activity. It could be a mental disability as well. And I think that's important um, to, to emphasize. However, when we're talking about major life activities, that includes things like caring for yourself, performing manual tasks, seeing, hearing, eating, sleeping, walking, standing, lifting, uh, manual tasks of that nature, but also things like learning or reading or concentrating or communicating. Uh, and it could also uh, apply to any sort of uh, major bodily functions. And, and it's overall just a very broad idea and anything that impairs the ability to um, to do one of those major life activities could be a disability. Now, I do have a question. So on the topic of things that impair everyday life, let's say I'm working at a retail store and I'm required to be on my feet for my whole 12-hour shift. And this is day in, day out. So it is repetitive, but I'm experiencing chronic pain because I have to be on my feet. Would this be a disability or would this be something else? Yeah. So I hate to give the lawyer answer here, but it's going to depend, right? Because when we're talking about a disability as it's defined under the Americans with Disabilities Act, and, and more importantly, when we're talking about whether it's a disability that your employer is required to accommodate, which we're going to get to a little later on, in the work context, you still need to be able to complete what are called the essential functions of your job with or without accommodation. So to go back to your example there, it's going to depend on whether standing on your feet for an entire job shift is an essential function of that job. Now, some jobs, maybe that would be, but frankly, in a lot of jobs, there's a chance that that is not an essential function. If you could still complete the essential functions of your job by sitting in a chair while you work, or being allowed to take breaks here and there so you can rest, then potentially that may be a disability and potentially may be a disability that could be accommodated. Interesting. I'm just thinking about a recent call that I had with somebody. Um, sometimes I cover for intakes and there was a specific situation where somebody was a bit agitated that a manager was writing them up for using a stool here and there while they were working a counter. And um, the argument was... It didn't say anywhere in the job description that he had to remain on his feet the whole entire shift, nor did it say that a stool was prohibited, and yet he was still getting written up for it. I'm glad you brought that up because the, the job description, like this individual you're speaking with, is a really important, uh, is an important resource to look at in the context of whether the impact is uh, an essential function of the job. And the reason why is that oftentimes, legally speaking, when we're in court or arguing with other attorneys or with companies about what is uh, an accommodation that can or can't be granted or whether the individual should be accommodated, that question of whether something is an essential function of the job is going to be often decided by what's in the job description and is this something that the job description says is a fun is an essential function? Now, is a job description legally required in Florida? No, they're not. There's a, there's no requirement to have a job description uh, for our employers out there listening. It's highly recommended that you have a job description, and the main reason why is for situations like this and and other situations. Uh, it's best to have things be as clear as possible because 
you don't want to be in a situation where the employee is arguing that being able to stand is not an essential function of my job and the employer is saying, no, it, it is. We need you to stand because if you're not standing, then you can't complete this job. And having a job description there can be very helpful evidence one way or the other. Now, should the job description include accommodations to disabilities or how to get them? In the job description, no, not not necessarily. Um, the The process for accommodations should be included in any sort of employee handbook or or policies and procedures for the employer. Um, now, a lot of job descriptions these days will reference the ADA and will make clear that you know for ADA purposes, these are the essential functions of the job, and it's because that employer is sophisticated enough to know that they may be at an issue where an employee requests an accommodation and the employer is going to look at the job description and say, okay, well, with or without an accommodation, can you complete A, B, and C, which are listed here as, you know, the ADA uh, qualified essential, essential functions of your job. Interesting. So moving from the physicality of being able to complete it with manual labor, Let's talk a little bit about mental disabilities. You know, the the main difference between what is a physical disability and what is a mental disability is really going to come down to how apparent it is that the individual has a disability, right? And if you're an employer, it's best that you don't delve too deep into questioning someone if someone is claiming that, um, you know, they're dealing with, you know, for example, ADHD in the workplace, and it's hard to concentrate or to do certain tasks because of that. Now, you can, if you're the employer, request some sort of proof, whether that's documentation from a doctor or other medical professional. And in a situation where a disability is not readily apparent on its face, such as a mental disability, that documentation could be helpful for both the employee to explain why they need an accommodation and also, frankly, for the employer to, to better understand, okay, this is what my employee is telling me. They have this issue. I have this note here from their doctor that explains the limitations. Now I can apply those limitations. I can look at the job description, and I can find out what's a reasonable accommodation that would allow me to have this employee still work here. So can an employer deny any accommodations without having a note? Or do they have to consider a note and then make their decision? Yeah, it, it depends, right? So the idea of a note or documentation from your doctor, that's going to come up mostly in a situation where if the uh, if the disability is not apparent on its face, right, it's not readily apparent to the employer, they're allowed to ask for some sort of documentation there. Now, do they have to ask for the documentation? No, they, they don't have to ask for the documentation. However, as a as a best practice or as a as a pointer, you know, if, if you're the employer and you're looking to deny somebody a reasonable accommodation, which which is allowed, and we'll get to situations where it makes sense in a second, it would make sense to have gone through that process and have had the documentation. And the main reason why is that when we are looking at disability law or accommodations law, whatever phrase you want to use, one of the most important things, and this is for both sides, the employee and the employer, is to go through what we call the interactive dialogue. The interactive dialogue is the the linchpin of disability law or discrimination uh, claims and or providing an accommodation because it is the process on which it is actually determined whether there is a reasonable accommodation that can be granted. Now, 
when we're looking at the accommodations process, it always has to and, and must start with the employee bringing it to the employer's attention. There's no requirement that an employer offer an accommodation if the employee does not request one. But once the employee makes that request for an accommodation, that is when the responsibility is triggered for the employer to engage in an interactive process with their employee to sit down and have both sides figure out, okay, is there something that we can do here that will not cause an undue hardship on the company that would allow you to complete your job? While they're going through this process, I know it could be frustrating from an employee standpoint. You bring up that you want an accommodation, you want it right now, because then it'll make life easier. But realistically, is there a time frame that this has to be completed under? Is it an ongoing process without any deadlines? How does this really look from an employee standpoint? It we is an ongoing process. Now, the question of are there deadlines, is there timing, often that is something that an employer can kind of set via their handbook or their policies and procedures, and, and it's recommended that there are some guidelines in place. Now, if you're the employer, you don't want to set yourself up to fail by having your employee handbook say that there will be a response within five days or, or something of that nature, because sometimes these things take time. Uh, you know, if you look at the guidance from the EEOC, which is the main federal agency that would look into claims of disability discrimination, they even say themselves that a request for an accommodation needs to be reviewed on a case-by-case -case basis because each employee is unique, their disabilities be, may be unique, how it impacts their ability to complete their job may be unique, and you can't just put each request into its own individual box and say, okay, Every request gets decided uh, yay or nay within five days because that's, that's when we know. Some requests are going to be really easy to figure out. An employee comes in and says, hey, you know, I recently um, had an issue with my legs. I now need to use a wheelchair for the next month, next few weeks, whatever it is. And so I'm requesting accommodation that I can have a desk that my wheelchair can fit under and also that there is some sort of ramp or other way to access the office. The employer is probably going to look at that and say, yeah, that's an easy accommodation. We'll get you a new desk. Pro problem solved, right? Other accommodations might require more paperwork, more back and forth, and more of that interactive discussion about, you know, the employee telling the employer what issue they're having and why it impacts their ability to work. And the employer saying, okay, I understand you have this concern. It impacts you in work in this way. Let's figure out if we allow you to work from home, will that solve the issue? If we allow you to, um, you know, take a break every other hour, will that solve the issue? And then there's also the process that it is not accommodations, the, the dialogue, the decision of whether to accommodate an employee or not accommodate an employee, it doesn't end right then and there when the decision is made. They need to be reviewed periodically to find out, is this accommodation working? Is there something that we should be doing differently? Or is there just the reality that maybe there's going to be no way to provide an accommodation and allow you to still be able to complete the essential functions of your job? Interesting. Now, you mentioned case by case, and it sparked this question of, can an employer get in trouble if an employee comes up and says, hey, Jane from last year, she said that she had this issue because of this response she was really going through it and you provided this accommodation but i'm going through something similar i requested this accommodation and i was denied 
Is that legal? Is there any substance to that? As always, it depends. Now, that could be um, at least the first couple steps toward what may be a claim involving one employee got an accommodation under certain circumstances and then another employee under the same circumstances did not get an accommodation. Now, I can tell you in my experience, there's almost always a differentiating factor. Not always. Some employers do, in fact, um, do discriminate, right? That does happen. We wouldn't have discrimination laws if we didn't need them. And so that can happen where an employer grants an accommodation to one employee and doesn't grant, grant it to another employee. And they are, in fact, you know, what we would call similarly situated employees. Their request for an accommodation was the same. The underlying disability was similar enough and one was not granted. And that could be evidence of discrimination, um, you know, in a cross-sectional way that could also potentially bring in other forms of discrimination. If, for example, it was a white employee who did get the accommodation and a black employee who did not get the accommodation. And so those things should be evaluated and looked at, and, and that could potentially raise a claim. But when we're talking about a situation like that, the real dynamic, the, the thing to be looking at is how similarly situated are those two employees, and frankly, how similar are the underlying disabilities, job descriptions, essential functions, uh, requested accommodations, and, and other things of that, of that nature. So theoretically, if it's somebody who's working the exact same job, then it might be a case of discrimination. Of course, there's other factors that you'd have to look into, but don't always assume, let's say, Jane from the other department who has a completely different job description it might not be a case for discrimination. It could be, right? It depends. And, and you know, it's it's difficult. I think every every lawyer has it drilled into us from law school to, to not fight a hypothetical. And so I'm doing my best to not fight your hypothetical here. With all of this that we're talking about, we're kind of dancing around. How do you actually go about requesting accommodations? Right. It's an important question because here we are talking about, you know, what could be an accommodation, what could be a disability or not be a disability. And there's the practical question of, okay, I think I have a disability. I think it's impacting my ability to uh, complete my job. What do I do? And I would say this, from the employee perspective, the first place you should always look is if your company or your employer has a handbook, look in their handbook. I almost guarantee you there will be some section regarding requesting accommodations. Whatever that says in the handbook is what you should do. Not every company has a handbook. <laughs> Not every company has policies or procedures, depending on the size of the company. However, uh, that's always the first place to look. Now, some other things to consider, right, is that we're talking a lot about the ability to request accommodations and go through that process. And I just made the comment that most companies will have a handbook on this. The Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA, it only applies to employers who have 15 or more employees. And so oh. a lot of people are going to work somewhere and they don't have 15 employees. Now, there are potentially state or local laws that could change that. I will say in Florida, it is still the 15 employees under the Florida Civil Rights Act, which is modeled after the ADA. But some local municipalities may have lower standards. The city of Orlando, for example, I believe has a disability discrimination law that applies to people that employ five or more individuals in, the, uh, in Orlando. So... Look in your local laws, there may be other accommodations or other coverage there. But the first question is going to be, is my employer covered? And the answer is typically, are there 15 or more employees? 
I always tell this to people because I, I will talk to employers sometimes who have questions about uh, filling out their own handbook and, and what do they need or not need in their handbook. And and I will always say that just because you're not covered by the ADA or Title Seven or the Florida Civil Rights Act, that's not carte blanche to go out and discriminate as much as you want. Yes, you may not be covered by some laws, but there might be other laws you're not aware of that could cover you. And more and more laws are changing day to day. More and more localities are adding other protections, whether it's a, a local county or a city or a township that may have other other protections out there. And frankly, at the end of the day, whether a law applies to you or not, it's typically better to try to follow that law. I think it's also typically better to try to be a good person too. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that is true. Even though, you know, I don't want to paint a broad brush and say that just because somebody is not following a law means they're necessarily a bad person, right? That, that is very true. That is true. There are a lot of laws in the world, and if they were all easy to follow, then I wouldn't have a job. Exactly. There is a reason why we do have attorneys. So let's assume your employer is covered and you are wondering how to go about an accommodation. Like I said, look for an employee handbook. It probably has language in there. If it doesn't, or if the language is something broad as much as, you know, you can always request an accommodation and doesn't tell you how to do it, here are some things to know. The employee or a representative of the employee needs to let the employer know that that employee needs a change at work due to a medical condition. Now, the process starts with the employee asking that question, and then as we discussed earlier, it becomes interactive. Some things to be aware of as far as that initial request, the word accommodation or reasonable accommodation, that's not necessary, right? There are very few magic words in, in the law of if you don't say X to your employer, then you won't be covered. Now, it doesn't hurt if you're talking to an HR person to say that I'm looking for a reasonable accommodation, but if you don't use the word accommodation, your claim is not over, right? All you need to do is let your employer know that you need a change at work due to a medical condition. It's important that you disclose what your disability is and also you disclose how it impacts your job. Those two things are required but how you choose to disclose a disability and how you choose to say how it impacts your job, that can be done in a multitude of ways. I didn't want to disclose the full scope of my disability, but I did want to allude that I have a viable disability that impacts my day-to-day -day life. It is up to me to choose my wording. Where I could where say, I uh, I'm living with a particular handicap and it's affecting my life in XYZ way. I don't have to disclose of what it exactly is or do i so you will have to disclose enough for your employer to confirm that you do in fact have a disability to your point you just said there as far as the wording goes yes you can choose your wording but your employer is allowed to know what the disability is that you need an accommodation for and likewise your employer is allowed to ask you to provide medical documentation to to support that now there's other requirements as far as what they can or can't do with that medical information, who they can or can't share it with, right? Just because you tell the head of HR that you have a disability and you need an accommodation, that doesn't give the head of HR the right to go and tell your coworker who sits at the desk next to you or anyone else. Your, your privacy is still important and there are still other protections in place such as you know requirements under HIPAA about what can or can't be in somebody's personnel file. But the individuals who need to know about your disability to decide whether to accommodate you or not, those individuals are permitted to ask questions and, and find out the extent of, 
what exactly is this mental or physical impairment you have that is limiting your major life functions? And then steps after that. Right. So after that, right, a couple of things could happen. Let's play out a hypothetical. You go to the HR representative in your workplace and you let them know you have a disability and how it's impacting your job. They may follow up with some questions. A lot of companies these days have accommodation forms and the employer is allowed to, to say to you, thank you for letting me know. Can you please fill out this form? That's acceptable. And a lot of, a lot of places will do that. Paper trail can be really important in this process. And while you can request an accommodation verbally, it's recommended you do so in writing. That way, if there's any question down the line, there's a clear written record of, no, I requested an accommodation and they did not grant it. Once you're past that process, you've requested the accommodation, that is when the interactive dialogue kicks in. That's when you and the employer or you and the employee, you sit down and you talk through, okay, what is impacting your ability to work? Are you still able to complete the essential functions of your job? And what can the employer do to help you at work that will not be an undue hardship? An undue hardship is the key part there because we've been talking a lot about a reasonable accommodation and an interactive dialogue and your employer granting an accommodation. The employer is allowed to deny an accommodation if it would result in an undue hardship, which is essentially something that is a significant cost or burden to the employer to grant that accommodation. Are there guidelines on what exactly is something that's substantial or does it just amount to something that the company is not willing to pay? Yeah. And <laughs> that's a good way to look at it, right? Because if it's just something the company is not willing to pay, well, it's, it's likely that a judge or a jury might not believe you that was not in fact an undue hardship. Uh, are there exact guidelines? No, they're not. Much like the question of whether somebody, um, you know, has a disability that is impacting the ability to complete their job, much like that is a case-by-case -case basis, the question of whether something is an undue hardship is also a case-by-case -case basis. And depending on the size of the employer, depending on the accommodation needed, some things could be an undue hardship and some things could not. You know, when we're talking about the cost to an employer for a small business that is not making a lot of money and, and maybe the owners are barely making ends meet and can barely meet payroll as is, what's going to be an undue hardship to that company is a lot different than an undue hardship for, uh, you know, an, an Amazon or an Apple or one of those companies that is, you know, making a lot of money. Uh, they, in theory, would have to show a higher level to meet that undue hardship standard. So from the employer standpoint, if you are to go forward in the process of denying an accommodation, you better have a game plan on why you're denying it. Yes, you should have a game plan. You you can't deny an accommodation just because you want to deny an accommodation. In the same way that if you're an employee, you should have a paper trail of requesting that accommodation. If you're an employer, you should have a paper trail of why you deny an accommodation and specifically being able to point to what was that undue hardship? What was the significant cost or burden that it would cost you to grant that to grant that accommodation? So now that we've talked about the whole entire process, Let's focus on whether or not an employee was denied the accommodation or an employer wants to deny an accommodation. What should they do? Right. And, you know, as an attorney, I think I'm required to say this, but I will say always you should speak to an attorney. 
right? Whether that's one of the attorneys here at the Scott Law team or somewhere else that focuses on employment law, it's important in this situation to make sure that if you're an employer, you are handling all requests appropriately. And if you're an employee, that if your request is denied, your rights are protected. And so my recommendation, if you're an employer and you have employees who request accommodations, make sure that either your in-house counsel, if you have one, or whoever your outside counsel is, they're aware, they're looped in, because it's important to make sure that you're not accidentally violating laws or somehow not going through the process correctly. If you're an employee, while there's no requirement that you have an attorney when you're going through the accommodations process, it can be helpful to have an attorney even if we're working behind the scenes, to help you out in how to formulate that request, how to make sure your employer is properly on notice and aware of what kind of accommodation you're looking for. And then ultimately, if your accommodation is wrongfully denied, that, that attorney can step right in and help you out in making sure that your rights are protected. Well, it's been good to be talking about this. Again, I do want to say that we are happy to be bringing awareness to the disabilities that many people do live with and um, that is it for today's episode of can they do that thank you gabe for joining me today yeah i'm always happy to talk about you know protecting workers rights and or making sure that employers are are doing the right thing uh but you know especially this month when we're talking about disability awareness i think it's really important to be having these conversations and with that we're going to wrap up this episode thank you so much for joining us and we will see you next Thursday on the next episode of Can They Do That? In the meantime, feel free to check out our social media at Scott Law Team. And if you ever feel like you need some help with your employment issues, feel free to call our office at 561-653-0008.